You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And this is the first in an ongoing series of book club episodes where I'll be joined by friends and Christian civics leaders to discuss books that have the potential to inform the way we live out our faith in the public square. Right up top, I want to let you know that the next book we'll be discussing is Prophetic Lament by Soon Chan Ra. We had actually made that decision a few weeks ago, unrelated to the protests and the threats of military and militarized police violence against our own citizens, but it seems maybe even more appropriate now than it did when we made the decision. You can find a link to the book on our website, christiancivics.org, and we'll have that episode out probably in early July. But this week, we're talking about The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt. Most of the discussion about this book in my circles when it first came out focused primarily on the first third of it, where he discusses the idea of motivated reasoning. His primary metaphor in that section is that our reasoning and logic are like a rider sitting on top of an elephant, and that elephant is our prior assumptions, our impulses, our baked-in attitudes. Another metaphor he uses is that our reasoning functions more like a press secretary than a strategy director. Whether we know it or not, we actually spend a lot of our mental energy on protecting our assumptions and our frameworks, rather than reasoning fairly against new evidence or arguments. But it turns out that's just the first third of what this book is about. He goes on to try to provide a more complex spectrum of morality than just left or right, progressive or conservative. He compares our moral foundations to taste buds, and taste buds each register different base flavors, and our particular concentration of different kinds of taste buds give each of us a slightly different flavor profile. And so using that metaphor, he tries to break down what our basic moral taste buds might be. And then lastly, he ends the book by exploring why all of this leads us to entrench into our teams when it comes to politics, making polarization harder to overcome. I'm joined in conversation by Nathan Lemer and Thomas Turner, who are two members of the Christian Civics Executive Board, and Pastor Charles Drew, who's a part of our teaching faculty. This is a long one. It turns out that editing a four-person conversation is way harder than editing a two-person conversation. But I want us all to pay particular attention to the times when the conversation turns back around to social media, as it does a couple times. Nathan especially is great about following up with people kind of offstage, really aware of how hard and messy the dynamics of engaging with someone online are. And while the book isn't particularly about social media, it does make a lot of sense that our conversation kept coming back to it. So without further ado, I'll let Nathan kick us off. Thanks for recommending this book. Height is one of these guys who, who I've wanted to read for a while, and I've seen enough TED Talks, and I've seen them reference a number of op-eds, but it was nice to finally sit down and actually read uh, The Righteous Mind. Charlie, it was actually you who prompted me to think about this being the first one for our book club, because this was... I think like Nathan, a book I had meant to read for a long time and had sort of faked my way through a number of conversations about. But what made you want to pick it up a couple months ago? The the title, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, because it gets very close to one of the deep concerns I have, which is to help people to understand why they're so angry and in a way that helps to de-escalate that anger a little bit. And I was I was looking not for a religious book because I knew it wasn't a religious book, but I was looking for a book that might uh, add some helpful insight into the way people operate that uh, that would help people to be more charitable towards each other. So that's that's my first my first interest uh, in opening the book. And Thomas, what were you looking for in it or what were you hoping for from it? Yeah, I I was surprised by the academic nature of the book to really start off, honestly. Based on the subtitle, I thought it was going to be much more in the weeds of kind of like Gallup polls and what people think and how people's reasonings and thoughts around politics and religion shift, but actually to get 
kind of more behind the scenes was a interesting take on it. And it was actually more of the, the why in the end, which is a pleasant surprise. And I'll say one of the things that I really appreciated was the way he broke down the specific mindset that people in the contemporary West have that shapes the way we interact with the world around us. I think the phrase he used was weird, as in Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Was that something you, Thomas, had thought about before? Were you... Yeah, I I mean, I work for an international NGO, have a lot of colleagues that are not Western, not from a Western context. So that part of being in a multicultural organization that's also faith-based has really shown me the kind of unique perspectives coming from both a Western and Eastern approach. But I think I've never actually put morality into that same space. So to me, morality always has seemed like a constant that there's a lot of different perspectives on things, but morality is kind of the same in terms of what is actually like the quote unquote universal truth. So actually going through and the it was really helpful for me to see him explain that like individualistic versus a sociocentric perspective. And then that that did get me wondering about how beholden Westerners are to like an individual concept of righteousness, especially Christian discussions on like sanctification and things like that. So I really started thinking if we are born with minds that want to be righteous, then how can we looking more towards like a sociocentric perspective on righteousness, especially within the church and how the church's job is not necessarily to make a bunch of individually righteous people, but instead to have a collective of righteous people doing righteous things together. I'm a big anti right fan. Almost every interview he someone gives, he's like, he talks about putting the world back to rights. That stuck with me with the sociocentric perspective that Jesus didn't come to just die to make each little person individually righteous, but actually to build a whole body of Christ. It's this body together that's righteous. I got a kick out of the fact that he used the word weird. He made an acrostic out of the word weird because uh, out of that particular kind of mindset, using the word weird, because it was a way of taking a shot across the bows of his own ship, you know, sort of saying, hey, wait a minute, in our hyper-individualism, are we really, do we really understand what the rest of the world is like? And we really understand, well, he's not asking the question, do we understand what God's vision is? He's not asking that question. But he makes me ask that question clearly, um, the Lord is interested in individual transformation and corporate transformation. We don't choose one over the other. It's a it's a it's a combined reality. And you had said earlier when we were talking about this book that you felt like hate's framework helps take some of the threat or some of the heat out of interacting with someone with a different value system from yourself or a different moral matrix from yourself. Nathan, you're probably the person in this conversation who spends the most time interfacing with people with very different moral matrices from himself. And probably the person who spends the most time professionally interacting with your political opponents as opponents. Has there been anything in this book that has made your day-to-day professional life easier or less emotionally taxing? So actually, uh, one of the things I, I really appreciated from the very beginning of the book was he described kind of the political worldview or, 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 or the makeup of the politics is not far left, center left, center right, center a far right. But he sort of described it as like, you know, liberal and or, or rather conservative and progressive and then also liberal. He described the three viewpoints, which as someone who grew up reading Friedrich Hayek's Constitution of Liberty, which really actually kind of gets into this kind of breakdown I was actually really fascinated by that because it talked about this idea of like those who want to conserve and those who have a different perspective for focus on 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 uh, maybe more of a progressive outlook. And then also those whose liberal identities, they might be liberal, but they, they intersect at different angles, different points with both conservative and progressive ideology and thinking was very helpful for me. And what I also enjoy was 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 was. And I want to get this right. I am the guy who always mispronounces his name. Are we saying hate or height? <laughs> hate. 
hates. Okay, I want to make sure it's clear. It's his name, his God-given name. I didn't know. <laughs> I was just double-checking. Um, it is like, weird. Let's we can just. It's weird. Out. It it's is weird that his name is is hate. hate. Yeah, hey, yeah. you'd think it would be against height, yes. so we get yes. the heights of things, but yeah. Exactly, he, he's reminding us that we shouldn't hate others. We should <laughs> enjoy hate, which is interesting. <laughs> but no, I mean, we, so so that was interesting. It was the first kind of clue in the very beginning of the book that I was like, I'm going to like this book. Not because it, it fits into my priors, but when I was younger, understanding how to work in politics, I actually found that worldview from the Constitutional Liberty book very helpful. And so it was interesting that hate, who has a very different political outlook than Hayek, is coming into this with that conversation. And one of the things that I find really interesting, and this actually came out recently, there was a, a Twitter back and forth between someone I know who's on one side of the aisle and someone else from the other side of the aisle. And person B basically attacked person A with vitriol and ad hominem attacks, and it was insane. And both these people are big time professionals. Both these people have huge corporate donors, huge, you know, foundation support left and right are well-respected on both sides of the aisle. One's left, one's right. And I defended person A by saying, respectfully, I disagree with you, person B. And uh, he blocked me on Twitter. Just like blocked me. It was just like unbelievable. I, I, I've, this is someone who I've, I've literally helped fundraise for in the past. And I, I just sent him an email and I said, hey, buddy, not going to say your name. I saw this back and forth. I defended this guy, not because I think he's right and you're wrong, but because I thought that your perspective was a little personal in the way that you engage with him. And, you know, maybe I crossed the line by responding. Maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe I should just let it go. But he's a buddy of mine. I was defending his, you know, him as a person in my comment. And I sat on my sat on it for 48 hours. And I got this email back actually late last night that was like, Hey, Nathan, thanks for sending me that email. You're right. I, you, it caught me at a bad time. I overreacted and I shouldn't have done that. And I really appreciate you writing me and letting me know how you're feeling privately, et cetera. And I think that is the type of thing that I've learned that, that hate comes out is that you, you are you have an opportunity to engage with people across the aisle, across the different perspective and realize that there's actually a human being there with a number of experiences and shared stories and, and, and whatnot that help create who they are. And there's two types of people that I engage with from the other side of the aisle uh, and even my own side of the aisle, which is either they're, they're trolling for the heck of trolling just because like it's they're flamethrowing and that's their shtick, or they honestly are people from a different philosophy than you, but you guys can agree or disagree and, and still drink uh, plenty of, of beer together or engage with another as friends. And that's what you got to strive for. You have to figure out those people who are just there for, 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 the shtick and those that I can actually engage with one another and, and not be seen as flamethrowers. And so I appreciate my buddy responding to me the way he did, but I think also kind of fits with what this book is about, which is trying to figure out what is the different presuppositions and experiences to help shape who those people are. And then how can I appropriately engage with them to, to actually move the conversation forward and, and find common ground and agreement. Before we move on to talk maybe about some of the things that we thought were gaps in the book, I want to circle back to the Western perspective. We've talked about the emphasis on the individual that we have in American politics. I like to sometimes say that we have two competing cults of the individual in the U.S. We have the cult of individualism and the cult of individuality, the cult of self-sufficiency and the cult of self-expression. And that both of those things are versions of what's broadly called liberalism. The idea that some kind of freedom on the individual level is the primary good of society. And I think that that sometimes really does get at the difference between what we would consider Western and non-Western cultures. So I want to circle back to Thomas, who had said that he felt like some of the ways that hate articulated the difference between the West and other cultures kind of made sense of some of your experiences working with people around the globe. Because you work for a faith-based organization, and it is global, and you you interface with believers from what hate would call cultures that aren't weird, how have those relationships changed you or shaped you? It definitely points out the kind of American exceptionalism that I think becomes ingrained in us and we all take for granted when we're Americans that the the way our tribe does things is the way that like 
everyone could or should do them. Just being able to like actually interact with people that have very different perspectives. It really challenges your like stereotypes about other people and other cultures that you just pick up from growing up within America. I'm trying to pull up my Kindle app is not working because he had this. I know he had this quote. I was trying to pull it up. I'll have to get my. I'll get on my phone. Well, you had pointed to American yeah. exceptionalism sure. as being something that's different. How do you see the absence of that in other people? If it, that's something we take for granted, what does its absence look like? I think being part of a glo- like a global organization, but having the headquarters in America, it's a it deals a lot with like centers of power, and having to be very intentional about pushing the power and authority out more into the different offices so that they can thrive and work well on the ground instead of having HQ kind of dictating every little thing and micromanaging, especially from like a, an American evangelical context to get like specific, like even certain things like what prayers are said at certain corporate functions, the Christianity that we have in the US and the different divides just are like non-existent in other contexts. So when you go to India, there's a whole contingent of our employees that are like Thomist, and it's just not part of the regular kind of American mm-hmm. Christianity. I think it gets to like in the subtitle, why good people are divided is a lot of it is because you form these like teams and you think your team is right. Like he says in the book, is like you put all of your reasoning behind arguing for your team's sake and making sure your team is always out on front and I think that with the American exceptionalism that we're kind of ingrained with, it infiltrates our faith in ways that we don't know all the time, where we think like we're more Christian or we hold we hold Christianity like the truest Christianity or the most pure form of Christianity. Yeah. And our version of Christianity is Christianity and everything else is Christianity contextualized. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, and especially with America, that gets into the both good and bad of like all that happened with missionary boards and the sending of missionaries into colonial contexts and things like that, 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 yeah, it's definitely, it's this American Christianity. And then you realize like for me is like the Christian expression is so varied throughout the globe and there's so many unique and beautiful and wonderful expressions of faith in other contexts, that it it obliterates your (laughs) exceptionalism. And Charlie, you've been talking about political divisions in the church from a pastoral perspective for much longer than I've been Christian. I want to start with you when I ask the room, for everything that's been helpful or encouraging or that's rung true for us about this book, where have you seen gaps in it. As someone who has talked about some of these similar divides with hundreds and hundreds of people over the years, as someone who is very seasoned at talking about political divisions in the church, when you were reading this, what did you recognize as things maybe he didn't have access to or points he wasn't completely equipped to complete as a result of coming from a kind of avowedly naturalist perspective. Well, there's an irony, I think, in his writing, and he's neither realistic enough nor hopeful enough. The Christian perspective says that, with respect to realism, that we're we're broken at a very profound level, and that we're not going to fix ourselves or our society just by cognitive effort to kind of uh, understand things better. There has to be a, a radical transformation at the very deepest level who we are. He, he doesn't really have access. He, he doesn't have a, a philosophy that enables him to, to identify what needs to be changed at the most profound level, nor does he have much hope, and that's the other side of it, that actually people can be changed at a very, very profound level. I mean, he's, he's locked into, even in his groupishness discussions, he's locked into an essential view of man that, that he's, he's in it simply and solely to pass his alleles on to the next generation. He, he's locked into that because he's an evolutionist philosophically. Whereas we have this hope that people can be transformed at the deepest level of their motivations, not perfectly, but truly. And that that can show up in a really transformed social expression. Again, it's not perfect. And, and that 
you know, I'm, I, I think Christians make the mistake of making turning their hope into triumphalism, so that they think mm-hmm. that they're they're with just a few Bible verses and and a a good view of soteriology, they can fix not only themselves completely but also politics, and that's a terrible mistake that that Christians make, where they f- they fail to understand that that the great fix is still ahead of us. But at any rate, another thing I think he's lacking is he doesn't really have a, um, I mean, what's his vision? You know, what, what his vision, it seems to me, is simply let's find a way to sit down together and get along. It's understandable that he doesn't have any larger vision of that. Whereas I think a Christian vision is, is one of profound love and goodness that reflects the character of the Trinity and and a and a, a, a transformation of culture through resurrection life and so on and so forth. There's there's no way he can hold before us. It seems to me a a, a substantive enough hope that would make us want to work really hard to push against our tribalism. Hmm. Whereas whereas the gospel does give us motivational uh, reasons for working against tribalism as hard as it is. Those are Nathan, some of my thoughts. Nathan, you had a strong reaction. Well, actually, I didn't. I was looking at something on my screen that popped up from an email, <laughs> and it was worth I, I, I thought I was just being so profound. <laughs> and I was you preaching. Were. Yeah, you yeah, were really good. helpful, and I okay. agreed with, with everything that you were saying, but my reaction <laughs> was to something that someone emailed me. And I was literally like, what are you talking about right now? Yeah, yeah. And of <laughs> course, I realized after I did it that I was on the screen for the podcast. <laughs> Sorry about that. I mean, it was great. It was great. It was like that moment where you like wake up from the dream where you're in your night, you're in your underwear and you're in front of the classroom. You're like, oh my goodness. This, well, for, for me, it was like that time when I was preaching at a wedding ceremony and it was very obvious to me that the maid of honor, I was really getting through to her because she was breathing very deeply. Yes. And, and, and then she passed out because I, almost, I, I, was I wasn't good. getting through at all. She was hyperventilating on the, in the, in the heat of the moment. And uh, we have to leave this in. We have to leave this in. This yeah, is yeah. what people want. This is what they need. This brings everyone together because look, even those in the morally right and the morally left, they've had these experiences where they've, they, they've realized they made a terrible mistake because they were looking at their email, but they were still in public view. Yes. On the darn zoom call. My apologies. <laughs> That's quite all right. We'll keep it in. We'll double it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. What was I, the question? The vision piece? No, I thought that was really, that's a really profound point. And I, I like sensed it, but I didn't know how to put words to it. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And I kind of took it like his whole worldview is so loaded, but whatever. His worldview okay. like was like, it is what it is. Like, my rigorous academic research points towards this as being the only valid option. <laughs> Therefore, we must do it. And that's not a, I mean, that's not a very engaging, that's not a vision that people rally behind. Just a little comment on that. It's interesting to me. He wrote the book in 2012, bemoaning polarization. Well, here we are in 2020 and his book did no good. <laughs> Things are more right. polarized. They're, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, the, the, his very project that drove the book seems not to have succeeded. I, I'm not going to blame him, but I, it's just that people need to have power to change and they need to have reasons for changing, which are which transcend simply the naturalistic view of human beings and who they are and where they're headed. For as much as in the first part of the book, he decries rationalism as being unrealistic. Ultimately, the book builds to a rationalist point or a rationalist call to action of what I'm trying to do is make you aware of these things and by knowing them, you will be better. And I mean, he he's a little more complicated than that, but it basically still boils down to inhabiting the system that he says in the opening of the book is faulty and mistaken, which leaves me a little concerned. Yeah, It's a rationalist book doing rigorous research and explanation about why rationalism is not enough. It traps itself at the end. 
Anyway, moving on, I felt like the more he started speaking specifically about governmental policy and electoral politics, the weaker the book became. Like a lot of his discussion of psychological mechanisms and moral matrices worked. But when he then started suggesting rewrites for presidential speeches, as someone who's written speeches for not at the presidential level, but um, at other levels of campaign, I found some of his suggestions weak or lacking. How you're going to pay for that was not necessarily as compelling a tagline as he seems to think it was. Yeah, I think I, I think there's a couple of things. One is the slogans of 2012 are not the slogans of 2020, which I think play into it too. I read I read his writings, and again, I read the the source material for some of the, the the speeches and stuff that he's given, forming what he wrote in 2012. And it's almost like, oh, that was an adorable time, and that was that was the issues of our time. I mean, look, this is going to be released, I assume, during still the pandemic that we are in. And I think the pandemic and a lot of conversations about uh, media manipulation or questions about the truthfulness of those who are speaking in public office on both sides of the aisle all kind of speak to this sort of like there is a passe kindergarten approach to some of the way we talk about this rhetoric. And I do think that it would have been of value for me if he had actually done a little bit more not homework, but a little bit more actually engagement with those who are actually writing the public affairs speeches. Like, I think it would be interesting if he had talked to a, a Rick and allowed him to help formulate this. I think some of the things that you you see this are things that you would see, you think people want to see or read or is going to affect, but actually not actually engage with the those who are actual political scientists and actually engage in the day-to-day of the PR world. And again, especially in the, in the, in the land of COVID in our current state of affairs, there is this, I, 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 I can't help but read anything from 2011 or 2012 and 2013 and just kind of laugh at how, how naive we all were and how much more loaded things are now than we even want to admit back then. Yeah, there's this one quote that I kind of highlight from him there. He had written that social and political judgments depend heavily on quick, intuitive flashes. It reminded me of today, but it also reminded me of like why when I was in grad school taking a film theory class and we're talking about like montage, how powerful it is for like, it was like Russian montage and propaganda. It clicked for me. I was like, oh, this is like Instagram and Facebook. And what is quicker and more of a flash of intuition than like a meme? And we're putting ourselves in those positions to have these kind of divisive moments. One of the things I, I went, sorry, if I can jump in on that, oh, one of the things that has been most fascinating for me over the past couple of years, and it's something that I've had to do in self-reflection. I mean, again, I was in the midst of the political transformation of 2010 and 2012 and what was going on in the politics then. And you can't help going through a lot. If you're an honest writer on both the left and the right, you you go back and you look at what was written and done back then. It helps re-educate how you think about the status of where we're at now and the matrix that we have now. And how many people I, I've met who said to me, if I knew the rhetoric I was saying back then would lead to X person or Y person or this, that, and the other... I think that's a a really fascinating thing. And I think it's important to look at hates, even comments or what he thinks is going to be the rhetoric of that day and go back eight years later and be like, so this is where we ended up and evaluate that and kind of see maybe if there's a new axis to evaluate that on. I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of one of the reasons it's important not just as Christians, but as citizens, as people invested with responsibility for the direction of the state and for political operatives to actually have close and transparent relationships across the aisle. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the conversation, the like hand-wringing you're talking about of, if I had known 10 years ago that the things I was saying were going to lead to this, I know that some of the things I've heard, being a Democrat myself, some of the things I've heard some of my professional Republican friends say, fill in the blank on that statement, are things that other Democrats and I were talking about when I was on campaigns, when we were breaking down what the opposition's rhetoric was like. Like, I mean, if they keep this up, they're going to be stoking this, this, and this. 
And I'm sure as when you get into the kind of radical desacralized individuality, there were conversations I was not privy to happening exactly um, in the exact same war rooms on Republican campaigns. I feel like my work when I was working on campaigns would have been more constructive if I had fellowship with, if I was in Bible study with people working on the campaigns I was working against, they would have been able to call me out on things I needed to and vice versa. I have really enjoyed, I'm reading Robert Caro's LBJ book, which is like a required reading for anyone who does my job. And I've somehow slipped through the cracks for these many years to finally read it. But it, it strikes me, Every chapter, going back through the 30s and 40s, looking at the way campaigns are run and the way the party systems work and the way people really didn't have that same tribal experience. He even writes about how just the ideologies were entirely different and and it was just all over the place. And, and I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And again, it's like reading this book, The Righteous Mind, and going back and looking at some of the way these campaigns are run 60, 70, 80 years ago, or even go back to the politics of the 19th century, it's like, oh my goodness, there are so many lessons and guideposts to learn how to avoid this. But we choose not to. We we choose to not, I was going to make a social distancing joke, but I won't. It, it just, we choose not to learn those lessons. And it, it shows itself through this book and, and the lessons that we've just chosen to avoid. It seems to me that things are so far gone now. I sometimes despair. I, I don't know quite mm-hmm. what what our hope is, but it, but then I ask myself, well, but but what can be done? And I think what can be done by way of starters is to is to do this very thing one on one to to bump into the imago dei in the form of another human being, just one person, and who is who has who thinks my politics is absurd and to, and to really respect that person and to try to have a conversation where I understand him. There's, you know, we're, we're so siloed from each other because we don't have those kinds of conversations. And I, I just, I find that a lot of Christians are just terrified. They don't know how to do it. They don't want to do it. They, they're scared that their church will blow up if they talk to each other and so they, and so they don't try, or, or they pre-select so that their church is just like them politically. And we have a great opportunity, but an enormous challenge to kind of push back. And the and the place to begin is really locally. It seems to me, in 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 one on one relationships with people who differ with us. I want to, from there, just share a quote from I think it's chapter three. Before we carry on with the conversation, he's talking about the way that. Our reasoning and our intuition work together smoothly to fend off attacks and lob rhetorical grenades of our own. (laughs) The performances may impress our friends and show allies that we're committed members of the team, but no matter how good our logic, it's not going to change the minds of our opponents if they're in combat mode too. If you really want to change someone's mind on a moral or political matter, You'll need to see things from that person's angle as well as your own. And if you do truly see it the other person's way, deeply and intuitively, you might even find your own mind opening in response. Empathy is an antidote to righteousness, although it's very difficult to empathize across a moral divide. One of the things that I've always actually felt or thought or held to be true in my faith is that Empathizing across those kinds of divides is actually not as difficult for Christians as it is for other people. Because we have the image of God, because we know that things we perceive as threatening or dangerous or evil or wrong are not of a separate substance from things that are good, but are things that should be glorious, but are malformed in ways that are fallen, it's easier and less threatening for us to empathize across those divides. That kind of theology of things that are wrong actually being funhouse mirrors distorting a reflection of something that is supposed to be good, or things that are bad actually being disordered goods, worshiping something created in place of the creator. One of the one of the reasons why it's easier is that if we really understand what's going on, we don't have to win. If you know you don't have to win, in other words, that the Lord's going to win, big picture, you don't have to win. If, if you really believe that, then it's a little bit easier to talk 
So we have less to fear and more to praise. Yeah. So bearing those things in mind, then, how can Christians use Hate's book to practice better fellowship or practice more challenging fellowship? Like, What can Christians do with some of the ideas he throws out there that our neighbors might not be able to do without us showing them how? I would jump in and say that a really good way for Christians to put that into practice is actually to sanctify or Christianize that quote you shared, because I find it really interesting that he says empathy is the antidote to righteousness, where I would really think is empathy is the antidote to self-righteousness. You're going to have to define your righteousness somewhere else other than yourself in order to be truly empathetic. But at the same time, like empathy defeats self-righteousness. I'm not the judge. God is the judge. And placing that righteousness back where it rightfully belongs gives you that opportunity to then empathize with another person made in the image of God that is also struggling and attempting to live in this world. I would quote page 371, the very end of the book. So the next time you find yourself seated beside someone from another matrix, give it a try. Don't just jump right in. Don't bring up morality until you've found a few points of commonality or in some other way established a bit of trust. And when you do bring up issues of morality, try to start with some praise or with a sincere expression of interest. That's a very practical bit of advice that we we use this in the seminars you and I do, Rick, when we give people homework and tell them. Despite the fact that neither of us read this book until a month ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. So he's basically following our advice. But but I mean, that, that's a good bit of advice. Yeah. I think we say a lot that it's very hard to maintain animosity towards someone who is able to articulate and sincerely praise something that you hold deeply valuable. When I read this book and I listened to his writing, listening to his discussions, I keep on having this all through the lens of social media. And I don't know that it was intentional to be that way, but I am curious if the engagement with one another is different based on in person versus social media. And I didn't know if that was something other people wondered or grappled with because Again, the example I used in the beginning of this about, you know, the back and forth was over social media. But look, we use actual interpersonal relationship emails, like actual letters to one another to communicate in a way that actually allowed us to find resolution and, and move ahead. So I guess I was just wondering to, the, to, the, to, to my colleagues here, my friends, did, w- w- is that something you feel or, or do you feel that what he's writing is for all encompassing conversations for the different tribes of the American political system. Yeah, I do find, especially with the example you shared and the now that you bring it up, the quote I just read, it's almost like he is perfectly describing Twitter. Right, that's uh, what I'm thinking. Like, <laughs> it is just... <laughs> and a conversation I've been having a lot over the last six months, or maybe the last 12 months, is the fact that social media is almost perfectly designed to feed our worst impulses where communication and reasoning and conversation are concerned. Yeah. Yeah. I just the stimuli and response system of posting and reacting, the way algorithms prioritize things that stay on people's screens longer, either because they're trying to figure out what the heck it means or things they react to more, whether it's them sharing and commenting it, retweeting and saying like, this is everything that's wrong. I could not, and granted, I'm not a neurologist, but I am someone who has worked in political communications right as social media was becoming a thing and then got out before it really hit critical mass. But based on what I know and understand about human psychology, human behavior, the human spirit, and neurobiology, I could not create a less constructive communication medium than Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. for trying to provoke productive conversations about government and policy and urge people on to healthier character in faith and citizenship. I feel like the challenges 
he highlights in terms of being stuck in our own moral matrices and having a hard time understanding people who are communicating within different moral frameworks is a lot easier when you're not communicating in a venue that is inherently performative. Yeah, You're not communicating in a venue where you don't just have to worry about, does this person understand me? But are other people whose feeds I show up in going to either be impressed by me or continue wanting to have a relationship with me because I'm signaling that I'm still part of their in-group, even though I'm interacting with this person who is not part of their in-group? I mean, it's part of the reason at Center for Christian Civics, we're always kind of pretty big believers in getting people in the same room as one another when we talk to them. Yeah. Uh, And why things like having this call over video chat instead of us being at the office is torture to me. It's not at all surprising that the Lord, that that the final state um, that the Lord has in mind for us is resurrection. He's into embodiment in a big way. I mean, the incarnation as well. And there is something about embodied presence that you cannot replicate in any way other than actually being together. I'm a concurring with you that the way social media is structured, yeah. it, it, it's Gnostic. It's, it, it destroys real community. It works against it at least. It's not, I mean, we're having community here, so I, I won't, I don't want to be a Luddite about this, but, but I, I do think that we, we're at a disadvantage when you can't hug somebody, when you can't have the Lord's supper together with somebody when you can't share, when you can't do that, something enormous is lost. So, so to put it positively, it seems to me, our understanding of the church as an embodied community that, that touches each other, that hears each other, whose who's singing it sets out uh, sound waves that vibrate in our own brains, and then who we share common cup together. The, all of that stuff, that's just not incidental. That's really, really fundamental to what it means to be human. And, uh, and, and, it's, and it's part of the solution to society's problems when people learn how to be human together. And social media doesn't help. Yeah, I want two things on that. I think one about uh, communion and worshiping together. One of the things that's been really interesting about this time of social distancing and sheltering in place is that this is we go to a church that has a phenomenal children's ministry one of the consequences of that is that this is actually the first time that our families come to church together because the kids are always pulled out and then it's like adults and kids and separate and like we're actually all doing church together every Sunday, which has been really fascinating. And that has allowed for like a reshaping of community in a way that I think is really healthy. And it'll be interesting to see if our how much our kids want to go back to children's ministry full-time and be separate and how much we're going to want them to after this. What will kind of change now that there's been more families together right now. And then I'm a really big Cal Newport fan. He wrote the book Deep Work. And one of his things about doing work well is that you should get off social media. And he had a really interesting piece on two different eras of social media almost, and that there was community at the very beginning, and it wasn't that bad. And then he calls it like, quote, unquote, like modern social media. And he said, like, how much worse can these services make us feel about ourselves before we realize that there are other ways to get the things we used to love about the social internet? There was a big shift when like Twitter and Facebook, it was like telegraphing your friends almost, like getting a telegram. Yeah. yeah. And that was like, cool. It was like an address book with a messaging phone. Yeah. It was like getting a telegram and like, that's been around forever. And like, there's messengers, like there's always been, I mean, there used to be physical messengers, like marathons are run because there is a messenger. And, but now this, like the algorithm and the timeline is like geared from like friendship and socialness to like this content, endless content barrage. It gets dystopian fast. I, I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. I, especially during COVID, I've noticed in, in a way that I didn't before, but Specifically, how different mediums work differently. Like Instagram still seems like pleasant to me. It's like pictures of people's kids, and like everyone's trying to like show themselves what they're doing. Even TikTok, which is something I'm not the biggest fan of as a company, but like it's like funny. I can't help but laugh when I'm looking at videos of like people doing stupid stuff, right? And it's like chill and positive, and <laughs> it's funny. If you, I, I don't recommend you, you know, undermining your own privacy to get TikTok, but if you can do it in a way that doesn't let 
people know who you are, you should check it out. It's funny. Or you but, can just um, preserve your privacy by signing up for Vero, which uh, uh, is private by default because the app never works. Well, there, so you can't. Post there's, there's our second plug of the day, uh, Vero. Well, our app doesn't work, but we're sponsoring this podcast. Probably not. But what I was going to say is when it comes to a certain website that, that is all about social media um, and people posting other pictures and stuff, I, I it has like taken been taken over by conspiracy theorists and on on different sides of of hate spectrum, and I, I have caught myself wanting to respond type and then literally make nope not doing that not today satan not today <laughs> and i have seen a number of people who i respect and love like literally post i deleted this thread because everyone freaked out or i went down a rabbit trail that somehow connects bill gates and 5g to the origin of the bat virus and it's like crazy town Alex Jones conspiracy stuff. Uh, and I see that and I'm like, oh my goodness, I want all of you on a Zoom call right now. And I really want to look you guys in your eyes and be like, do you really believe that Uncle Jim? Do you really think that buddy? You know, I, I want to have that, like I want to hug them as, as Charlie says, I want to have communion with them. It, it, it has destroyed the medium for me. I have been like on that website and I, unlike other people who just get off the website, I'm still on it. But I snooze. I just keep on hitting the snooze button, <laughs> which is you can just snooze people for 30 days. So I was just like, I'm just going to snooze them. Still friends, still following them, but I'm not going to read it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to go on that rabbit trail. I want to talk to them in person. Mm-hmm. I want to give them a hug. I want to tell them we're going to be okay or or there's a, a bigger hope than we have here. And I think that's been very frustrating. And it's been very clear through this experience that we've all shared in separately, but together but also fitting in with, with hate's book. I couldn't help make that connection. And I appreciate you all sharing your shared perspectives on that. If the person in question isn't someone you have a close enough relationship with to feel comfortable dropping them a private message or seeing them in person when COVID has passed and hug them, is there an appropriate way to engage with them otherwise? Hmm. Like a question that comes up for me a lot is like, who do I have an obligation to engage with? Like when I see people in my feed going down rabbit holes, be like I have acquaintances that I connected yeah. with and I have friends and family members I'm connected with. And, you know, for, I know that for a lot of the people I'm connected with online, if I were to engage and push back, it would actually, and some of Hate's work covers the mechanisms by which this happens, but it would actually cause them to just entrench more. Well, like, how I, do you know when you're yeah. considered in enough that someone will be receptive to you despite being on the other side of this divide? I think there's a lot of wisdom required here. You have to know whether you've got enough leverage relationally to push back. It's obvious with the people who are closest to us, the people we actually see in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Those are people with whom we have a higher, it seems to me, obligation to push back because we have resources for managing the pushback in terms of just physical presence, hugs, handshakes, body language. There's, there, there's lots of stuff that we have, which you don't have if they're only virtually present. But I, I honestly, I, I, I just, I, I think there's just, we need a lot of wisdom. I can't give you anything more than that. But I agree with you. If, if, if the person is pretty siloed to begin with, hardly anything you're going to say is going to do anything except push them farther away and contribute to their entrenchment. On that note, last question for the room. Anyone have any stories about successfully receiving and integrating pushback ourselves? You mean us receiving criticism? Yeah. And then positive responding? Yeah. Because I've realized our conversation is mostly, and this was the question I asked was, how can we push back productively against other people? But that assumes that we are always right. I can come up with like more than 10 instances where I've really changed the way I view something theologically 
or put my faith into practice because of what someone has spoken to me. But I can't come up with a single time I've changed my political view because of a conversation with someone else, which I find really interesting. I would say in which I've made a mistake and in which I was corrected by someone else. And, and actually it, it was, it was around uh, this pandemic about a month and a half ago, someone I know and like and respect and, and look up to posted a blog that was on medium, which by the way, is the worst thing to post right now is if you post on a medium blog, you should post on like an actual published thing, but I liked him. And I, and I was like, <laughs> I, I, I retweeted it. Right. I, I didn't really get into the nuts and bolts of it. It fit the narrative I wanted to hear. And so I retweeted it. <laughs> and of all people, my boss texted me within like 15 minutes of me tweeting it. And he said, Hey, did you, did you read it? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I like, I like this guy and he's great and I've liked him and we've been friends for a while and I usually like what he says. And my boss said, did you actually read the links that he hyperlinked to? And did you actually <laughs> like get into this? Because he's getting roasted online because he deserved to be roasted. But then also like his conclusions are fitting with his narrative are it wants to be not actually what the facts are saying. His point was, yeah. If you read it, it sounds fine, but when you actually click the links, because he hyperlinked a bunch of stuff, but like your endnote, footnote comment from earlier, you really didn't open every com- I'm reading on my phone, like whatever. Sounds good. I'll retweet it. Nathan Lemer thinks this is awesome. And I talked to my boss further and further about it. And he said, look, I love you. I respect you. I think you're just an incredible, smart guy. And if you think this is interesting, then cool. But like, I'm just challenging you to like, think it through. And I did. And I realized my, my guy was right. This blog is total <laughs> garbage. And I like undid, the, I deleted the tweet. I deleted the tweet and I responded to him. Thank you for telling me, like, mm-hmm. honestly, and thank you for doing it in a gracious way, like in a self-deprecating way that got me to, that, that knew how to push my buttons as a person to mm-hmm. rethink my priors and how I would respond to it. I don't think he would have sent that text to someone else. I think he said to me, because he knows me and we've developed a relationship that he felt that he could do that with me. And it wasn't because, oh, you're representing our company and you're falsely representing it or that. It was just like, I like you, you're a smart guy. I think this guy's selling snake oil. You may want to check the snake oil label before you drink it. And I did and and ended up that I didn't I, I deleted it. This happens on a weekly basis with me where I'll say something stupid and someone will call me out and I'll be like, yeah, you're right. I should have done it. But like, it, it is, it is that process that, that hopefully helps us become better. I think that's what, I, I think that's what I get the most out of this book. You asked us earlier, but I'm going to say it again, the, the refined answer. What this book is actually, it gives us hope that sanctification is a real thing is that we become more holy as we engage with other people who think differently from us. And as we continue to check our priors and to check ourselves, our, our baggage at the door and think through what could possibly, you know, be wrong of our ideology or be wrong about the way we're wired and continue to read things and read it a certain way. And I think that's the main lesson I get from this book. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for sticking it out. I know that recording conditions weren't ideal during the crisis and we're still working on how to format and structure these book club episodes but visit our website christiancivics.org to order a copy of prophetic lament and to submit your questions or comments for the next book club discussion and stay tuned for this podcast next week when i'll be bringing you a conversation i had with steve park of little lights urban ministries in washington dc where we talked about cultural intelligence and cultural literacy, and about how not to be stumbling blocks to repentance. Until then, I've been Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'm looking forward to being back with you next week.